I started getting into trouble back in about 1989. I got multiple DUIs and I was homeless. I was out of hope. I was looking at some prison time back in 2010. It was like, wow, now what? You know, I felt like I, I didn't have any legs to stand on. I really thought I was on solid ground. I wasn't in control anymore. I was gonna face a judge. A judge was gonna tell me what I was gonna do, where I was gonna do it. When I was in jail, Sagebrush, uh, the jail and prison ministry team used to come in. I started paying attention and I prayed and I talked to God. He started convicting me, it shaped me, it molded me, it, it reconstructed my heart. That's what changed it. When I realized how much he really loved me, he died for people like me. You know, he died for a drunk. And the compulsion was removed. The prayers were finally answered. And I believe once and for all, I have absolutely no desire to ever use drugs and alcohol again. True transformation started taking place when I started being very obedient to God. And it made me feel like I can be used for an eternal purpose. I've been coming to Sagebrush now for about a dozen years, and I said, well, God, I need to volunteer, but what can I do? And it was obvious, it was a no-brainer. The jail and prison ministry jumped out at me. So I've been doing that for about six years now, and it's wonderful. Uh, it's an opportunity to give, to share my faith, my story, to share hope. The jail and prison ministry has really changed my life. We go in there and talk to these gentlemen and these guys in the jails do more for me than I could do for them. We offer hope to one another. That's what I do today. I'm very proud to say I'm part of the jail and prison ministry team. I'm gonna do it till God says not to. I'm filled with hope today because I have felt hopelessness and I don't have to stagger through life anymore. I'm on solid ground on solid feet for a solid purpose. I no longer just attend the church. I am the church. We are very proud around here of our jail and prison ministry and all the lives that have been impacted as a result of kind people bringing hope to hopeless situations. So if you're ever interested in that, all you got to do is go to the Sagebrush app, just click on the decision tab, go down to serve, you can click jail and prison ministry. We'd love to have you be the hands and feet of Jesus there in jail. Now friends, right around the corner is our Christmas Eve services. This is an opportunity for you to bring your friend to come along with you. 85% of people, according to the national statistics, say that they will say yes to coming to church if someone invites them on Christmas Eve. So you have an 85% chance that they would say yes. And we have wonderful services planned on all of our different campuses, also on TV. So whether you come in person or you stay at home and watch, we got a wonderful TV program as well. Last year, almost a quarter million people watched our television service. So you can spread the word if you're at home. Just tell other people to watch the TV. But let's get as many people here as possible. There's an opportunity for you on the Sagebrush app. says Christmas at Sagebrush. Also has a Christmas Eve invite. You click on that. You can send that to all of your contacts. You can post it on Facebook. You can put it up on Instagram. Let me give you a little taste of some of the things you're going to see at our Christmas Eve service. Take a look at this. Join us for Christmas at Sagebrush. Starting December 23rd. Choose from 20 service times across eight in-person locations. 
or watch online or on TV. For times and locations, visit sagebrush.church slash Christmas or download the Sagebrush app. We can't wait to celebrate with you. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. We've been working on this for months, so make sure you come. Bring a friend or two with you. Tell them pie is involved because you'll take them out for some pie, won't you? Who would ever say no to pie? And there's so many delicious pies. And there's your French silk pie, your peach pie, your apple pie. Can you tell them a little bit hungry right now? I like pie an awful lot. So tell them pie is involved. Get them a piece of pie, and maybe you can bring them with you for Christmas Eve. All right, let's get into the message today. This person played their college football at the University of Florida, won the national championship there in 2010. He was also an All-American. He was such a good football player that he was drafted in the fourth round by the New England Patriots. In his second year of professional football, he made it to the Pro Bowl. He also had the opportunity to play in the Super Bowl. He even caught a touchdown in the Super Bowl that year. Now, even though everything in his uh, football career was going well, his personal life was spiraling out of control. In 2012, he was investigated for a double homicide. He was later acquitted of that charge. The next year, he was uh, charged with a civil lawsuit because he shot one of his friends in the face. That was settled out of court. And then a little bit later in 2013, he was once again tried and convicted for murder. Uh, he uh, was uh, sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. Now, if you're a football fan, you already know who I'm talking about. This is Aaron Hernandez. Aaron Hernandez, who played for the New England Patriots for just a brief amount of time, he was really a great football player. Did you know that the day that he took his life in jail was the same day that the New England Patriots went to visit the President of the United States to be congratulated for their Super Bowl victory? And when the officials found Aaron Hernandez dead in his cell, they found that he had written on his forehead and also on the wall a passage of Scripture. In fact, this passage of Scripture was opened up in his Bible that laid on a table as well. It was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, we don't know if Aaron Hernandez gave his life to Jesus Christ or not. We don't know if he confessed his faith and trust in Jesus. But we do know this. If he did, he's in heaven right now. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that bother you a little bit? Grace for a convicted murderer, someone who had taken somebody else's life? You see, it's amazing to me that we don't understand the amazing grace of God, do we? How many times has somebody died? And you say to yourself, well, I hope they're in heaven. Because you say that because you think them going to heaven is based upon their good works. But the Bible teaches that our very best is like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. The only way we get into heaven is because of the amazing grace of the Lord. And we know that from the story that we read when Jesus was being crucified. He was crucified between two thieves, one to his left, one to his right. 
one of the thieves cursed Jesus, but the other said a tremendous statement of faith. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This thief will never get the opportunity to be baptized. He'll never get the opportunity to read a single verse of Scripture. He'll never attend a church service or a synagogue service. My goodness, he can't even make things right with those that he's wounded along the way. And yet Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because it's not about his goodness or his sin. It's about what did he do with Jesus. Did he repent of his sin? Did he trust Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of his life? You do not get to heaven based upon your goodness. You get to heaven based upon his. You don't get to heaven based upon what you do. You get to heaven based upon what Jesus has done for you. That's why we love the song Amazing Grace so much. It's the most loved song of all time. Did you know that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The other day, it was a couple of years ago, there was a documentary that was on TV about Amazing Grace and where the song came from and the impact of that song. Did you know that John Newton was the one who wrote that song? And did you also know that John Newton was a slave trader? That's what he did for a living. He was a brutal, heartless individual. He would sail to faraway lands. He would kidnap people, drag them onto his slave ship. He would bind them. He would take them back to England, and he would sell them into slavery. That's what he did for a living. One night, he finds himself in the midst of a storm. And he doesn't believe that the ship is going to stay together, that it's going to break up, and he's going to be lost at sea. And so he makes a storm confession, right? When everything's going bad in your life, you see people, they call out to the Lord. They ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. John Newton was no different. He didn't believe he was going to live to see the light of another day. So he confesses his sin. Says, if you get me out of this storm, I'll never live this way again. I'll never sell another human being. I'm so sorry for what I've done. I repent. I change my ways. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead. Come into my life. And save me. Well, the ship didn't break apart, and he made it till dawn's light the next day. And you would think for most people, when they get out of the situation that they're in, they would forget about the commitment that they made. John Newton was not that man. He never sold another slave again. That was it. In fact, he joined his partner with William Wilberforce in England to stop slavery in the civilized world. It was out of his remorse and his regret over what he had done in his past life before Jesus that caused him to pen those amazing words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The documentary continued on, and it showed that there was a concert that took place just a few years ago in Wembley Stadium. I guess there were millions and millions of people that watched on TV. There were uh, thousands of people that filled up the stadium and they had all the greatest headlining bands there for, to sing their songs. And they had U2 that was there. And then Rolling Stones took the stage. And of course, it was a long festival, long concert. When you have something that's really long like this with a bunch of people together, well, they get drunk, they get high, they get rowdy. And the promoters were concerned that maybe they needed to get somebody on the stage to calm things down or somebody was going to get hurt. 
So who do the promoters send out next but Guns and Roses? These guys weren't exactly geniuses, right? You don't want to send welcome to the jungle folks out there when it's already a jungle out there. Well, this now has gotten to a place where people are getting injured, people are getting hurt. And the promoters are thinking someone's going to die. We've got to calm this thing down. Well, they had a woman that was there. Her name's Jessie Norman. She's a famous world-class opera singer. And they asked her, they said, would you face this raucous crowd? Would you calm them down? This woman's incredibly brave. Because she walked out onto that stage with nothing more than a microphone. And she began to sing the song, Amazing Grace. And when she got done with the first verse, that crowd began to calm down. You can watch it on YouTube. The second verse, you could hear people start to sing along with her. Third verse, tens of thousands were singing. And by the last verse, every single person in that stadium was singing that song. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. These people crying out for what they desperately needed, and yet what they were desperately missing in their life. Friends, I want you to get this. There's no such thing as a lost cause. The amazing grace is greater than anything that we've ever done. He still saves wretches like you and me. So we've been in this series called uh, Escaping Ordinary. And today we're up to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to look at a man who you know more by his later name than his earlier name. You know him by Paul. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. Now you know Paul. Paul was the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, Paul was the one who God used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write half of the New Testament, almost half of the New Testament that we have today. But before he was Paul, he was Saul. Let me give you a little insight into this guy. Saul was a Pharisee. In fact, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's already in an elite position. And if you know anything about Pharisees in the first century, their job was to make sure people kept the holy law of God, to keep the Ten Commandments of God. But it wasn't good enough for a Pharisee to have you keep the Ten Commandments of God. They listed out all extra commandments, over 600 extra commandments of how you would live out the Ten Commandments. And so they, they burdened people with rules and regulations of Pharisees. He knew nothing of a relationship with God. It was all about do's and don'ts. And so they were the ones that would walk around and they would act like they were righteous, like they were better than everybody else. And they would judge everybody else by the way they lived their life. And if you did the do's and you stayed away from the don'ts, then you were in good standing with God according to a Pharisee. But if you did the don'ts and didn't do the do's, then you were in bad standing with God according to the Pharisees. Now, there was another Pharisee that was kind of the mentor of Saul, and his name was Gamaliel. Now, if you read Acts chapter 5, you know that Peter and John got themselves in trouble once again. They find themselves standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin because they have refused to be quiet about Jesus rising again from the dead. And the Sanhedrin, they're wringing their hands like, what in the world are we going to do with these guys? We got to stop this movement. This is absolutely ridiculous. And so they sent Peter and John into another room, and they began to confer as Pharisees and Sadducees what they were going to do, how they were going to deal with this issue. And this is what Gamaliel said. He said, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. Well, Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
And he just hears his mentor say, leave these men alone. If this is of God, you will find yourself fighting against God. I guess Saul didn't take the advice of the one who was mentoring him. Because he made it his personal mission to stop the spread of Christianity. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first person to die for the cause of Christ? Saul was the one who was there giving permission to his death. This is what the Bible says. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the street and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there in an official capacity. His job in his mind was to stop the spread of Christianity. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes, I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Well, after Stephen dies, persecution breaks out to the church, and guess what? They begin to scatter to the ends of the earth. The message of Jesus is now being spread, and Saul's thinking to himself, I've got to stop this. And he hears word that something exciting is happening in Damascus, that many, many people are giving their lives over to Jesus Christ. He says, well, that's the first place I'm going to go. i got to shut that down. Look at Acts chapter 9. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what early Christians were called. They were called members of the way. Why the way? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. So he's going to shut down these people who belong to the way, whether men or women, so that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that the high priest didn't seek Saul out. Saul sought out the high priest. He says, I want letters. I'm going to Damascus. I hear these things are happening. Jewish people are being deceived into believing that Jesus has risen again from the dead, and it has to be shut down. So I want letters. I want to go and I want to imprison them. I want to take away their livelihoods. I want to take away their very soul. So look at what happens. He travels 150 miles to Damascus. He gets just outside of town. Look at what happens. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Jesus asked Saul a question, didn't he? He said, why are you persecuting me? Seems like a strange question. Saul's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting the people who follow Jesus. What's this tell you? When you get messed with, in Jesus' mind, he's getting messed with too. When you're being ridiculed, when you're being laughed at, when you're being persecuted in Jesus' economy, you mess with my kids, you mess with me too. So he says to him, why in the world are you persecuting me? And the people who are with Saul, they hear the voices, but they don't see anyone that's there. And then the light goes away, and Saul walks over, and he can't see a thing. And so they grab him by the hand, and they walk him into Damascus. Saul will be blind now for the next three days. He's sitting there in this room contemplating what has just taken place. And I think he's humbled at this point, don't you think? What's he humbled about? Well, he thought Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, but now he knows for certain that Jesus did. Because he's heard the voice of Jesus. So he knows that what he thought wasn't true is now true. And it brings him to his knees. It humbles him. 
I wonder how many of us, for how many years, you believe that Jesus wasn't the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you said to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to believe this stuff. I'm not ever going to buy into it. And then something happened. All of a sudden, Jesus entered into your world, smacked you across the face, and you came to your senses, and you realized that Jesus is who he says that he is. And everything in your life changed as a result of that. I think Saul is thinking to himself of all the Old Testament prophecies and how Jesus fulfills those prophecies and how without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins and that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. I think he got to the place where he says, I cannot believe that someone would love me so much in spite of all that I've done that he would die in my place so I could have a relationship with a living God. I think it brought him to his knees. I think one of the things when you read the, the letters that, uh, that Paul writes to the early church is he never got over the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You never get over the fact that someone died for you. I read a story this past week about a woman named Debbie Johnson. Debbie was married, had two kids. Everything in her life was picture perfect. She got cancer and she died. Here's what's interesting. She didn't have to. You see, when she was diagnosed with cancer, she was two months pregnant. And the doctor said, listen, we can cure your cancer. Chemotherapy, radiation, you'll be good as gold. You can live a long life with your husband, live a long life with your two kids. But the child inside your womb that is growing, the chemotherapy, the radiation will kill that child. So you have a choice to make. Do the chemo and the radiation and live. Or don't do it and take your chances that the cancer is going to spread during this time. She wouldn't take it. She wouldn't take the chemo. She wouldn't take the radiation. She carried that baby in her womb full term. Gave birth to that child. Two months later, she died. She died so that another could live. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He died so we might have abundant life on this earth and eternal life with him forever in heaven. Well, look at what happens next in this story. The Bible says, well, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on 2nd Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now, I love the fact that God gave him directions. Don't you love that? There's this guy, his name's Judas. He lives over there on, on Straight Street. If you could go check him out, you're going to look for a guy named Saul from Tarsus. All right? I love that God was that detailed. And I think Ananias is thinking, I'm not going. Because I know who Saul is. He's public enemy number one against Christians. I'll tell you that right now. It would be the equivalent of God coming to you when Osama bin Laden was alive and saying, I want you to go to Pakistan and I want you to find Osama bin Laden. He's going to be over there on Straight Street right next to Judas's house. Just go out in there and knock on the door. He's, he's waiting for you. Okay, you go ahead and you go. You wouldn't go. You'd say, oh, I'm not going to do that. Look at what happens here. Lord Ananias answered. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your servants in Jerusalem. I love that Ananias informs God as to what's going on. Don't you love that too? Hey, I don't know if you know this, Lord, but this guy's bad news. You know what I'm saying? Like God doesn't know that this guy's bad news, right? And he has, he's come with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Doesn't make any sense what God's asking Ananias to do. Lots of things in this world don't make any sense, right? I'll give you a couple more. Why doesn't an eggplant have egg in it? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll give you another one. Why doesn't pineapple have apple in it? That doesn't make any sense, does it? 
How about this one? Why do we call hamburgers hamburgers when there's no ham in a hamburger? That doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you another one. Men, <laughs> I love men. Men, if you tell them there are billions of stars in the sky, they will believe it. But if you tell them the, the paint on the bench is wet, they got to go over there and touch it. That doesn't make any sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? I love women, too. Every this, ladies, how is it that your wife can lose her phone eight times a day but can still remember the harsh words you said to her seven years, ten months, seven days, three hours, and 15 seconds ago? How's that possible? Let me help the guys out here for just a second. Some of you are dating. Some of you are married. Listen, when a woman says what, it's not because she didn't hear you. She's giving you a chance to change your answer. Just trying to help a brother out right here. What God's asking Ananias to do doesn't make any sense at all. But he does it. He goes and he sees Saul. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. Did you notice he got up? And then the first thing he did was he got baptized. Sam Houston was the first president of the Republic of Texas. And I'm told that he was quite the character, quite a sinful lifestyle. He lived for many, many years. And then finally, in his older years, he repented of his sin, asked Jesus to come into his life. He went down to the river to be baptized. And the pastor put him under the water, brought him up out of the water and said, Sam, your sins are now washed away. And Sam looked at the pastor and said, God help the fish. <laughs> when you gave your life to Jesus, was the first thing you did was get baptized? How, 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 how much time is it going to take for you to finally be obedient? You keep coming up with reasons. You keep coming up with excuses. Do, do you know that when Saul decided to get baptized, this was a very dangerous thing to do? Be, because when they got baptized in the first century, they didn't have a nice facility like this. They didn't have a nice baptistry like we have. They, they didn't have a nice crowd of people who were cheering them on. Now, it was quite a bit different, wasn't it? In the first century, they didn't have any buildings. And they didn't have a little baptistry. They would go out to the river. And whenever they would see people gather together at the river and all of a sudden they would see people being put under the water and brought out of the water, well, every Jewish person knew exactly what was happening. There's another fool. There's another person believing that myth, believing that crazy story about Jesus rising again from the dead. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, if you know anything about the Jewish people, they were never excited about Jesus coming and claiming to be the Messiah. And they certainly didn't believe that Jesus had risen again from the dead. In fact, Jewish people are still looking for a Messiah, even to this day. No, they would see those people gathered together to get baptized, and they would walk out, and they'd be on the sides. And they would shout things at people. You know, in all our years baptizing tens of thousands of people in this church, we've never had anybody ever booed during the baptism. Boo! Never had that. Never had anybody shout obscenities at someone else. No, all we have ever heard in this place are cheers, 
excitement. People are excited for each other, thankful that they're making their public proclamation of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's huge. In the first century, you'd be cursed. In the first century, your mom or your dad would say, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. In the first century, people who were doing business with you wouldn't do business with you anymore, and they'd let you know it. I will never do business with you ever again. It costs you something in the first century to align yourself with Jesus Christ. First thing Saul does. Who is Saul? Saul's a Pharisee. So let's see if we got this correct. So Saul, the one who's public enemy number one of Christians, has now become a Christian. And all his Pharisee brothers don't understand it. They think maybe he's been brainwashed like so many before. And all they know for certain is they don't want anything to do with him anymore. He's lost every one of his friends. He's lost everything. And when he goes and he gets in that water and he's under that water representing his dying to his old way of life and he's coming up to live his life for Jesus in the same way Jesus has died on the cross, was buried and rose again from the dead. That's the symbolism of what we're saying when we're baptized. We're saying I'm being raised up to my new life in Jesus. When Saul does that, he becomes public enemy number one, not of Christianity, but of the Jewish people. And they try to kill him. Oh, if you read the New Testament, they try to kill him again and again and again. It's just a matter of days as far as his assassination attempt. He's got to be lowered down in the basket to get out of town. Because everybody wants Saul dead. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think he still did it? Why, why do you think people, even to this day, there are people even to this day that are being baptized and they're being ridiculed for it. Why do they do it? Because Jesus is the treasure. And following him and serving him and honoring him means more to them than anything else. What he thinks of them means more to them than what anybody else thinks of them. You see, a Christian is someone who truly lives their life for an audience of one. So we're baptizing Christmas Eve. I think Andrew said we have 125, 135 people signed up to get baptized on Christmas Eve. We're very excited about that. Are you signed up? Are you truly a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Because you can you call yourself a follower if you won't follow him over there? You can sign up on the app. All you got to do is hit that decision tab. That's all you got to do. Just hit the decision tab and hit number two. Fill out the form. We'll call you on the phone. Make sure you've given your life to Jesus. We'll get your baptism all scheduled up. And I just can't think of a greater gift that you can give the Lord than to be baptized on his birthday. I think that's a tremendous gift to give him. Give him the gift of your obedience. What is God asking you to do that doesn't make any sense and you know in your heart and your soul you need to do it? So do it. Be obedient and live your life for him and him alone. Now, I need to ask the Christians a question for just a second. You ready? Do you have any lost causes in your life? Do you have any family members? Do you have any friends? Do you have any co-workers? Do you have any classmates? Do you have any relatives that you kind of washed your hands of and said that they're too far gone? You got a little list and you thought, oh, of all the people that might give their lives to Jesus Christ, this is the most unlikely person who will ever give their life to him. Friends, listen to me, rip up your list. 
start praying for the salvation of those people that you think are lost causes because God might use you in such a manner to reach into that person's life and lead them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a lost cause in God's economy. I was reading a book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Faith. And in the book, he tells the story about Bill Moore. I guess Bill Moore, when he was a young man, got drunk one night, got paid $5,000 to kill someone, and he did it. Well, he was convicted of his crime, and he is sentenced to death row. He'd been on death row for two, three years, every day like the day before. Had nothing to live for, no purpose at all. Angry, bitter man. Well, some people came from a local church from the jail and prison ministry. And they walked up and down death row, and they stopped at his cell. And they began to tell him about Jesus' love for him. That no matter what he had done, he was not too far gone. That the love of God, there's no limit to it. And the forgiveness of God is unconditional. And that he could ask Jesus to come into his life. And even though his sins were as red as crimson, that Jesus would wash his sins away as white as snow. He had never heard this before in his entire life. Never knew that God sent his son. Never knew that Jesus died for him. Never knew that Jesus rose again from the dead. He thought he was too far gone. He thought he was a lost cause. And then when he heard about the love of God, it changed everything. And there in that jail cell, he got on his knees and he asked Jesus to forgive him of his sin. He confessed his faith that Jesus is God's son, that he died on a cross and rose again from the dead. And his life was completely transformed. All the anger and the hatred and the bitterness was gone because now the Holy Spirit resided inside of him. And over the course of time, he got a new nickname in the jail called the Peacemaker. And everybody up and down death row was giving their lives to Jesus Christ because of Bill Moore. Because Bill Moore would not be silent about the difference that Jesus had made in his life. Well, local pastors began to go and visit with Bill Moore. And they were astonished at how much this guy was changed and how much wisdom he had. And so the local pastors got together and said, you know what? When we have somebody in our church that's looking for some help, you know, looking for a counselor, we're going to send them to Bill Moore. Now think about that for a second. This next week, you call us on the phone and say, man, I'm really going through this or I'm going through that. And we say, listen, just drive down I-40, down to the state pen, and, and you go in there to death row, and you're going to meet a guy named Be Bill Moore, and he's going to, who does that? Only Jesus does that. He was on death row for 16 years. Thousands of letters poured in. People that were impacted by the ministry of Bill Moore behind prison bars. He even won the love and the forgiveness of the family of the person that he had murdered. Well, they did something they never hardly ever do to someone who's in death row. They acquitted him. They released him. Bill Moore's still alive today. He's in an inner city working in a housing project as a pastor, telling those people about the love of Jesus Christ, telling those people the difference that Jesus can make in someone's life. Lee Strobel went to interview him, and he asked him the question. He said, was it medication that turned your life around? He said, no. He said, was it therapy that turned your life around? He said, no. Was it counseling that turned your life around? He said, no. Lee said, what was it? Bill, with a smile on his face, said, it was just Jesus. Jesus is more than enough. You got lost causes in your life, at least you think you do. Could you invite them? Could you invite them to come to church? Could you use the app? Could you pick up the phone? Could you send a text? 
could you get some pie? Could you be the hands and feet of Jesus? Some of you are here today or you're watching from home and you feel like a lost cause. Feel like you're too far gone. Feel like the love of God isn't available to you. Probably feel like God could love everybody else but he couldn't love you. And that God could forgive everybody else but he couldn't forgive you. You'd give anything to go back in time and change the things that you've done but you know that you can't. And you're certain that God doesn't care about you anymore. Listen to me. Jesus gave up his throne in heaven so he wouldn't be without you in heaven. He gave up everything to have a relationship with you. And his sacrifice that he made on the cross, dying on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins, it's sufficient. It covers all sins. And all you have to do is repent of your sin and ask Jesus to come into your life. And if you haven't done that, I pray today would be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for the lost causes, the ones who feel like they're too far gone, too messed up, too addicted, too whatever. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would so convict them of their sin and you would so much overwhelm them with your love that it would be undeniable, that they would trust in you with everything that they've got. And Lord, that you would fill them with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians. We haven't invited anybody to church in such a long time. We've not become your hands and feet. And yet we have a wonderful opportunity right around the corner. I pray, Lord, that we would be bold as lions. That we would take that one life that you've placed on our heart and lead them to the one hope that's found in you. Lord, I pray that your will would be done. That you would use us in a way that we've never been used before. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you give all of us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray.